You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Particulture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm your host, Michael Williamson, and we're here today in Austin, Texas, and I'm with Jesse Porter, Director of Cultivation and Content for GrowGlide. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here, hey, man. man. It's good. It's always good to see you. And on behalf of the Pip family, welcome to the Pip family. Thanks, man. Um, I appreciate that. It's nice to have these you know, new resources and access to the team and it's fun to be able to share knowledge and chat with you openly and i think it's great man yeah it's a one plus one equals three you know the acquisition is interesting because it's one of the first times that you know pip has been acquiring other companies in the space and they typically been like complementary to their offerings you know if you look at like greenhouse and vertical air but you know here's the first time that they've made an acquisition of, of a competitor yeah, I think, you know, historically Pip has made some really powerful decisions in trying to convey intimacy into this market and really understand it. And that's why I think it's fun to have a voice in a bigger community with more manufacturing power and more ability to serve the market. I think there's a lot of benefits that the whole community gets to see while we still push innovation and challenge each other and argue behind closed doors about the best way to do it. I think that's all good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking earlier that, you know, it depends on your perspective of a competition. Like, I've always been really pro, like, positive competition. Like, I want to outdo my best competitor because there's a lot of room to elevate in this space. And if you don't have someone to compete with, unless you're, you know, like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, you're just out there, you know, battling yourself, you can get a little bit stagnant. So I look at healthy competition as the catalyst for innovation and creativity sure and i look at it as a support network right like whatever happens in the space you know we both know mechanical systems fail challenges come up there's always a way to overcome it if you have good enough people in the room throwing good ideas at it and i think that's again one of the bigger benefits of the team being able to come together is let's all throw good ideas at each other's problems at the community's problems at this cultivator's problem that we have this long-standing relationship with. So there's this great opportunity to pull from each other and each other's experiences and serve the industry faster and better and help them make more money. Yeah. Strength and unity. It's, it's a real thing. And at the end of the day, our new relationship benefits the end customer the most. And I think that's the most important thing. It, it seems like different, whether they're vendors that service to the industry or even people in the industry, sometimes they forget about the end customer or they don't put the end customer at the center of everything that they do. Right. And I think sometimes it's a lack of communication. Sometimes it's a lack of resources. Sometimes it's just, you know, not really understanding what the problems are. And I think with the breadth of projects that we've all done now, there's so many different ways to solve a problem. You know, now, in a matter of minutes, you're going to get five really well-experienced opinions on that. You know? Sure. For anyone that's been living under a rock and doesn't know who GrowGlide is, can you tell me a little bit about and tell our listeners about you know the company and the solutions? Yeah. I mean, 
Groglide has been in the industry since what, 2017, 2018, but realistically it's about Darren's journey in the cannabis market, trying to find success, right? Darren Siples, the president of Groglide was a cultivator in Southern California and the market continued to grow and compress like we all saw. And his reaction was, how do I take advantage of this opportunity to help myself, help my cultivation partners, be more efficient, grow more weed and do it cheaper. And that allowed them to su survive compression in the early stages. And as a result, there's R&D fast and furious. How do we solve this problem? Get more out of this room, do more with less. And that sort of gave the rise to Darren really developing the solution that he did, augmenting it with air glide, really perfecting drainage, really thinking about the little things like how's the plumbing going to work and how is this, how much time is it going to take to install this? Can we shave that down, take away some of the pain of this whole experience that we went through? And I think the result is, you know, purpose-built solution with purpose-built support, right? It's, we say by growers, for growers, but at this point it's science applied to business with measurable success. Nice. It's interesting because once we started seeing competition pop up in the vertical farming space, it was like, oh, making other, you know, rackings or, you know, these retail racking guys who are converting over stuff. It was like, hey, wait a minute, there, there's, there might be some real legs in the racking space in this multi-tiered kind of venture. In the earliest days of Greenhouse Industries, before we were acquired by PIP, we were hitting trade shows 2012, 13, and we had racking and multi-tiered and we had fluorescent lights, right? We had T5s. And boy, the community was not super receptive. <laughs> you know, it was a slow thing. Um, and, you know, little by little, people would undersize their bedrooms and be like, hey, you know, I have a problem. I can't keep capacity in my flower or I have to veg in place and flower, which as you know, th there's a big cost when you're vegging in a flower room. True. Cycle um, time. Yeah, big time. Um, and so, yeah, we started kind of filling in these little niche markets. Um, but then, you know, you know, fast forward, it's crazy to say it's been 10 years. Um, and now look at the level of product and development and innovation and creativity. I mean, it might be one of the biggest change, you know, game changing things in the cannabis space in quite a while. It's that and probably what integrated HVAC. Yeah, I think we talk about this tech that drives both non-cannabis agriculture and cannabis agriculture, right? Like what tech do you invest in that helps you make more money? And fundamentally, like lights weren't really keeping up with a multi-tier indoor grow environment, right? And now we have commercial LEDs that if you understand how to optimize that tool, allow you to take advantage of two, even three tiers in the case of some of our partners, like Three Flamingos and Long Beach, right? These people have three tiers of cultivation they need a tremendous veg. Is three tiers even enough in veg for something like that if you have a call rate of 10%? So multi-tier veg, multi-tier mom, triple-tier flower. How do you support that? How do you make money off of it? And I think in a lot of ways, what they found is that their room utilization at that three-tier environment allowed them to drive a cost of production that allowed them to survive any market compression. So even if in the future holds seven, $800 a pound, they're still going to be okay because they're built to optimize the whole facility, optimize the lights, optimize fertigation. It took trial and error, but once they figured it out, those trackable metrics pencil out year in, year out. 
Not to say that there's not an upfront cost associated with packing in all that transpiration and the lighting and all that stuff. But when you look at the metrics, especially in a place like California, Long Beach, what an incredible spot too. Expensive it's to operate expensive there. real estate. So you have to maximize every cubic inch, right? And so, but when you start to look at the metrics, I mean, I guess what kind of, like from being a longtime grower in California, like yourself, um, you know, where do you, in single tier HPS, where do you see like the best players? Like what do those numbers look like in terms of grams per square foot? Yeah, I think it's obviously somewhat not fair, right? Because you can overload your veg, you can grow bigger veg and ultimately you'll have like these larger plants that cost you time when we think about cycle time in this larger facility. But if you play that game and you get that buildup, I see people getting 95, 100 grams a square foot in single tier HPS. These massive plants and the yeah. time you have to wait and that compromise means that there's this knowledge transition. Like go from the set points and senescence techniques and airflow tools that you were applying there to get 100 grams a square foot and transition it into multi-tier airflow limited where is the supply return configuration going to be like real math, real computational fluid dynamics? And guys like me that spent my whole career in cultivation, I didn't have time to learn psychrometrics or thermodynamics. So the conversations were remedial at best when I would ask my engineer for support. And this huge disconnect is, I think in one ways, which leads to the bigger challenges of multi-tier, right? Like how do you control leaf temperature? How do you mitigate the microclimates? How do you get airflow through a facility that's jam-packed at 80% cubic room utilization? It's a lot of material in there. But overcoming those obstacles, I think through phasing, right? You know, build one, learn how to use it, learn how to run it, lean into the partners that you invested into. Talk to your lighting company. Understand how to use that tool. Talk to your racking company. Reach out to your fertigation company, your nutrient company, fine tune. That's where I think the money's to be made in these commercial facilities, right? Go up, use the space, especially if it's expensive, and you'll make your money back faster. But you just have to build the SOPs, which is the challenge. Can, so 100 grams a square foot on, you know, like, and I, I would agree, you know, and I've even seen a little higher in some sure. cases. The one note that I always like to peg there is... They're growing a seven foot tall plant 100%. on a rolling bench typically. And so now you have like a nine foot plant, you know, and what are you working on typically? Step ladders and ladders. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when single tier growers like, you know, give me grief over multi-tier and the workflow. And I'm like, you're on the a safety. ladder. Yeah. Now we're on platforms, right. you know, we're on walkways that are secure and safe. You could clip in though. Yeah. I mean. It's been interesting to watch the innovation. So now from with GrowGlide customers, do you like, where do you see the best um, yields on multi-tiered LED? Um, we have customers measurably getting 85 grams a square foot in their facility. They test all over the range from 44% THC at 12% moisture content. That's outrageous. It, isn't it? And like it, I used to call BS on that. What cut is it? It is a magic flower. <laughs> yeah. So the 44% that I saw most recently was on an old school cut of J1, believe it or not. Which, which is what, Jack? Yeah, it just came up out of nowhere. Southern California cut. Some people have been yeah. running it, but it just sort of resurfaced. And then it's got that, you know, a train wrecky kind sure. of. Sure. It's a very unique terpene profile. Right. And that just blew up THC. And then you've got a cut like Cuban Lynx, which 
you know, I have a friend growing this testing above 5% Terps. It's that Cuban black haze something, right? Cross, yeah. Um, but then the thing is like... Is that Swamp Boys? I'm not sure where that came from, and maybe I probably shouldn't. Oh, gotcha. But people, people name stuff all the time, you know? Sure, and rename like, stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. that's part of the game that I played when I was coming up, right? Like, I had a hydro shop, but then I had this clone operation behind it, and I would support Harborside by delivering clones, and it became this game of, like, you know, they're going to order 5,000 cuts of sour, and I only have 2,500. I wonder if this Clementine would suffice. Sure. Not selling it to a commercial grow. I'm selling it to a place that's going to resell it as retail. And all the reviews were like, this is fire. This is great. But that came me up early on into like the strain game and how I really feel about it. What year were you in? What year were you a hydro shop owner and nursery owner? What? So 2015 okay. was the heyday mm -hmm. of like when I was heyday of when I was moving product, um, you know, solutions product but simultaneously sort of selling clones and developing my seed company and developing my industry knowledge. And, you know, that hydro shop, which was perfectly positioned behind Harborside was the best opportunity I ever had in this space because I sold people product that I believed in and had to support it. And it was like the difference between selling a commodity and becoming a trusted entity to that person. It's a lot different when your office is 500 miles away and you actually never really see your customers and maybe you got to deal with a phone call. Seven or days email. a week, my shop was open. You never smoking out front. You can come find me. You never knew who was going to walk through the front door, I'm sure. Never. And That's then you started disgusting. supporting bigger and bigger growers and had like bigger and bigger failures. I had, I personally have never experienced anything. Um, when I, when I moved to Santa Cruz and started working up in the Bay Area and, you know, it's like, oh, I got to go to the hydro shop. And, well, there, A, there was like, they were everywhere and I had never seen that much volume. I mean, it mm -hmm. was just uh, coming from someone who grew up in Florida, which was like very much a police state growing up being, you know, a cannabis user. There was like a whole different fear. And then coming to the West coast was like, wow, it is this wide open. Um, and so it was such a culture shock for me. And I was like, how many growers are in this state? Um, and I, I don't remember the numbers now, but California grower count, which I know it's probably dropping currently. To some extent, which market are we talking about? I would say com commercially, um, but um, but yeah, I just have never experienced anything like you know. And you were and you were born you were born w w and raised whereabouts? Southern California, okay. and then went up to Northern California to go to school at Cal. That's where mom got sick with cancer, and then got out, chased a bunch of different things, including professor at Oaksterdam University, and ran facilities. But that hydro shop again was like a jumping off point to other aha moments in the space, right? I was brewing tea, compost tea there, studied with Dr. Elaine Ingham, just trying to add value to my shop when I'm there and help cool. support people, selling books, Lowenfels books, telling people to bring weed in and we put it under the microscope live and talk through 80% relevant pest identification and you know analyzing the quality and stuff like that. But then I got to this point where I realized that I was surviving in a really crowded and competitive hydro shop market because I had used my brain and started brewing tea and having a different conversation than other people weren't. But no one had that skill set at that point. I was just trying to game myself up to differentiate myself in the market. And that aha moment was, this is valuable. I should invest more into learning more things about cannabis. And that's what to this day still drives me, right? Like I want to learn as much as I can but I also want it to apply to business success because that was 
the mantra and the path that I took at my hydro shop. How do I just use my brain to support these people to help them make more money, more quality, more quantity, more consistency, understand all this other stuff I'm trying to figure out in a way that's consumable. So it's almost like take the science and the data, apply it to businesses, see if it works. And if it does build on it. And that mantra is exactly what I go into facilities with to this day. It's like, how can I make you more money tomorrow than today? What can you do right now? What bottleneck can we solve within 24 hours? It's those little things and you check enough of those off and that's how you get operational efficiency. And for me, that's how I learned was like trying to help other people make a lot of money is exactly what gave me bigger opportunities in this space. You know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to give people an authentic tone and perspective from customers, um, vendors and players in this space. Um, what are, can you give some examples of some of the like low hanging fruit stuff? That's like, I can help this grow tomorrow if they do this one thing. And a lot of times these are things that don't cost any money, which is always the beautiful thing. Yeah. I think, you know, I always try to think about that ROI because if I go in and say, Hey, I think rerouting your duct work, changing your supply return configurations, putting in an open air mixing plenum and using integrated HVAC. People are like, dude, I don't have the budget for that. Baby step me until I can invest in that. And what I usually say is like, you know, what metrics and KPIs are important to you? That's my first question out the gate all the time. Like, what kind of business do you run? Is this fresh frozen extraction? Is this high grade flour? Is it mids for pre-rolls? Like, what are the goals on each of these rooms? And then we can really dial it in. And I think that opportunity is like, okay, you know, if it's a cultivation spot, and this is almost getting tired at this point, but an emissivity adjusted IR gun, the ability to teach someone how to use that tool, like people throw it around. I want to use VPD as a tool. For people who might not be familiar with that tool, can you tell them a bit more about what that's about? Sure. And I think... And say it again for me, because I didn't quite catch it. An emissivity adjustable IR gun. So okay. infrared gun, we're sort of familiar in this space as a cultivator, right? Shoot stuff and figure out how hot or cold it is. Now that we're starting to have these high level crop steering conversations about environmental control, drybacks, transpiration, PFD, managing all these different things, that IR gun has helped me make my friends, family, colleagues, and peers more money than any other tool in the space. Because when you adjust it appropriately, you get the right leaf temperature, right? It typically comes to hit concrete or brick or whatever it is. Right. You hit concrete first it's and like, like 0.95 emissivity. If you adjust to 0.97, which is a relatively agreed upon number at this point, you get a more accurate reading. And the readings of those two emissivities are six to 11 degrees apart on average. So it's dramatic. Why does all this matter, right? The point is that you're assessing plant health, like fluence, right? Fluence is great at research and came out with this 78 to 82 degree plant leaf temperatures optimal for photosynthesis. Okay, well, that's what we're trying to drive here. So why not shoot for that? What it means is instead of like looking at your wall mount hygrometer and saying, I think the temperature and humidity is right, you test the leaf temperature and you adjust it as this plant grows. So you're always in this optimal growth position and then you can adjust your HVAC system. So the big benefit of transitioning from LED or HID to LED isn't, okay, we have less heat. It's that we can, there's a smaller offset so we can run way warmer conditions in the room and still get really good plant health. 
So now we have this HVAC system that's tired and we're trying to retrofit. We can swap out the lights and we get a benefit because there's less heat in the room. There's less sensible. But then at the same time, we're just able to get more out of that unit because we're going to run it at a warmer condition. That's what HVAC taught me in this space is like, figure out the warmest condition you're comfortable so you with and it'll the be most, most efficient. Efficiently, right? It's it'll do the most work for the least amount of energy at that condition. So that offset's tremendous, which brings us back to racking. And early on in the process, you really need to understand your tier-to-tier spacing. It's relative to PFD and what you're trying to do from a cultivation perspective. So set yourself up for success early on with the lights that you're going to use or the lights you think you might use in the future. Give yourself enough room, but optimize it. Because if you take an additional six inches or eight inches on every upright, on every row, in every room you build, it starts to add up. And you're not optimizing the photons. Inches matter in the vertical farming space, for 100% sure. 100% penetration. We were just talking about intercanopy lighting and some of these other augmented techniques and usually a byproduct of not effectively maintaining plant management through veg. Should you have just grown shorter plants that would be more effectively served by a lower wattage light? Would that be a better play? Maybe. What are some of the... Um... Great. We talked a little bit about some challenges that we see in the vertical farming space, but again, it's not the racking's fault. It's not the lighting's fault. It's typically an issue of design and engineering. Typically, would you say that's accurate? Oh man, I don't want to keep digging this hole and calling out engineers in the space because that game is changing too. Like you talk to more and more engineers and they're really figuring it out and getting on the same page with supply return configuration and how much, you know, performance need you really need from sensible and latent. But I think it's also, there's a disconnect, you know, CFOs are talking EBITDA and cultivators are talking BPD and engineers are talking thermodynamics, right? So it's three different languages, but you can get on the same language of what KPIs and metrics are we trying to invest in to control? Well, then it boils down a lot quicker. That cultivator knows what tools they're actually going to use what they want to collect and what will impact their bottom line, right? Grams per square foot, COAs, price per pound, like these other metrics. So they can have that conversation early on of saying like, let's cut that corner, but this one's really important. I can do without that if I have effective controls or ability to get the data. You said something that kind of hit with me. It's like, I refer to it as like a CFO design grow versus a, like a cultivator design grow facility. And it's like, how much racking can I shove and stick and fit in this room? And it's like, I mean, long story short, just because you should doesn't mean, just because you can't doesn't mean you should. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, you know, some of those challenges that you see during the design process in terms of, you know, seeing facilities and saying, hey, you guys really need a little bit more buffer space around this cube. And then getting that pushback of like, no, this is like, we got to do this because we need this much canopy because we this is what we guaranteed to our investors, you know, and then you sit there and go, well, actually, I could guarantee you could probably get the yield metrics with less physical canopy if you don't choke this room. I think where I see that so often is, you know, in our customer journey, right? We come in and one of the first things we're asking, which is distance off the back wall, distance off the front wall, tier spacing, mobile, the basic stuff, what else is in the room is also like, what do you want to chase? Workflow efficiency or optimized yields? Do you want five foot wide tables because we can squeeze in another 800 square feet into these rooms? 
Or would you prefer we have better airflow spacing on the side so you can add additional half fans because you don't think that the air balancing from the HVAC is going to be enough, right? So trying to figure out how to balance those things, we try to really early on in the process, just educate the customer on where their power lies, what variables they have control of, and how that has a ripple effect through the rest of the decision-making process. Now you need this many more lights or in the case of five foot lights, like maybe that's more efficient, less drivetrain, less drive box, less lights for the same amount of canopy, if not more. Is it as efficient? Like that's, that chase is hard because every cultivator has to answer to a team. So it becomes, shouldn't we just add more canopy? And then that chase leads to, we're not going to have enough power for the HVAC. Now we're not going to be able to raise enough money. Let's go back here and refigure. So I always say, try and pursue multiple avenues of like, choose the, how much canopy can we smash into this room perspective? So you got a number and then choose the one that's optimized for workflow and everything else you plan on doing in that space. When you're going to default, really think it through, see what the Delta is and see if it's worth it. It's almost like there should be like an if then clause where it's like, if you cram all these canopies in, or there's all this racking in here, you know, then you will potentially have turn to page 37. Yeah. yeah this, yeah. these seven days. Yeah. But uh, to come back to uh, three flamingos for a moment. So earlier we talked about a single tiered, you know, high performing cultivators, let's say a hundred grams a square foot. And we got high performing multi tier under led, um, at 85 grams a square foot. So you know, on a double tier, I mean, it's really hard to, I, I just don't, I, I really struggle to get, put my head in, and I try to like put my head, uh, my mind in the, in the mindset of, um, I got to say it differently, but we'll edit that. Um, sometimes when I try and like put on the single tier HPS growers hat, if it's budget and you have like ample space and it's already there, sure. Okay. And it's, it's familiar and you're confident and you know, you need to be consistent and this is where you're comfortable. I look at a lot of this new technology and I'm like, who's a grower and what's their comfort level? What's their experience level with this stuff? Because that can dictate equipment decisions and, you know, like going three tiers in flower. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you've gone two tiers in flower at least and crushed that and been like, I'm ready, like, I'm ready to, I'm ready. I can take it to the next level. But when you look at it from a yield metric, what is that? 170 grams a square foot, two tiers. Yeah. I mean, you look at versus it versus a hundred look at it from an asset perspective. Like that asset is worth more per square foot because it's producing more per square foot. So as you go look for borrowing capital or you look to exit in the future, like that's a big deal. Like you're doing a lot more with a lot less. And as a result, you're more profitable if you do it right and manage it appropriately. It's scalable into any market. And again, it's more worthwhile your investment as an entrepreneur. And then you look at the metric on three tier flower and I can't do that math really quickly, but was that, was that 250 grams? I mean, a square yeah. foot. So yeah. how can you say that HPS yields, you know, if we're talking grams per, you know, square foot, that's a little bit different, but like, it's hard to argue because of the, the amount of increased yield and value there is just, it's not a little bit, it's monstrous. We try to do the math all the time on room utilization, right? Like we have a room generator tool where you can take your space and you can plug in a single tier and you're like, Hey, single tier square footage only like we're at 70, 75% room utilization, pretty standard, pretty solid. I don't think you add that second tier and you get to 
125, like some of the common metrics, I actually think that first number is skewed. It's more like 25% of the room because you're not using the cubic space, right? We can get to that 70 and 80% using the cubic footage in the space. Now we have a real operational efficiency metric where CFOs can be like, I can't go above 75. Like that's what all these cultivator cultivation facilities that are having success in multi-tier are doing. Like you need to have these extra areas for airflow, but that's a metric that's skewed because people want to say, oh, it's 125% room utilization. Is it though? Let's talk about that airspace, you know? Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, where people are like, oh, I've got 16 foot, or let's say I'll go less. Like I got 15 foot ceiling. So I'm going to go with a 14 foot tall rack. And you're like, no, you're not. Like, where's your HVAC distribution live and exist? Right. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you highlighted earlier, it's like serviceability. It's like, if your main aisle is three feet and some change, like, that's going to be a pretty rough workflow. Um, and there's something, you know, when I do these podcasts and I do them with like active clients and growers, um, morale comes up quite a bit. <laughs> right. And so like, and there's been different um, uh, themes over the years that I've seen, but like when people transition from, as an example, a single tiered HPS room and they get their first like retrofit of a double tiered LED room, even at whatever haters are in the building, it doesn't matter because it's new and it's a new challenge for them. And overall, I'd say most people, even though they're maybe slightly intimidated, they're really excited because mm -hmm. it's something new. And, you know, in cannabis, especially in production, you just, you are a machine and it does get that, you know, autonomy syndrome thing is like, is kind of real. Um, it's a career opportunity for a lot of people. Learning how to work on a multi-tier cultivation facility is a skill set that's highly sought after, right? And if you didn't take that risk and you didn't learn how to do it, then that skill set's dying off. Just like running three-part or some of the old techniques that just got passed on, right? Like gaming yourself up about the technology and how to use it is exactly what's going to keep you viable in this industry and give you job security, whether you're lead cultivator or trimmer, right? Like figure out how to use the tools. And I think that's one of the, you know, missed opportunities here is that there's fear, there's trepidation, there's capital limitations, but there's success out there too. And if you chase that success and really understand why those facilities have been successful and what metrics they value, you can mimic that. Maybe you don't buy the same exact stuff, but like mimic that working what boxes would you say um you need to check to grow good weed in the cannabis in the, the multi-tiered cannabis space i mean my heart says you got to start with good genetics and you got to know those genetics right once you know the genetics you know what to expect from a yield perspective a coa perspective a consistent bag appeal perspective it lets you put post-harvest processing into play it lets you master curing those things are all a byproduct of phenotypic expression and plant morphology that you control too with the environment you build that becomes your biggest limiting factor is your ability to control airflow temperature and humidity in these multi-tier environments so once you know your genetics and you know how you're going to steer them and what environmental itineraries you want to set up, you can get that predictable success. You can still leave yourself wiggle room to bring in new genetics, but they'll take a little bit of time to fine tune before they get to that 85 grams a square foot, sub 400 cost of production metric that makes you feel like you're winning and everyone's going to get a Christmas bonus. I think that to me, those are 
like driving challenges in the space that people are still trying to solve and certain brands get away with branding and other things that allow them to survive but they're also vesting into understanding how to use the tool as a legacy cannabis grower it's got to be fascinating to watch the you know the pound price and the fluctuation and you know I, i've never personally experienced such volatility in pricing as i i did as, as a grower in california i remember calling my wife one day after work and i was like honey this we're not going to stay here long like they're you know you start doing some math in california specifically on production and sales and it's like well, wait a minute like the oversupply has been happening for a long time and it's seemingly getting worse in some cases i think that's where again like the elevated skill set did you adapt with this industry because i always used to say quality quantity and consistency right like that'll build a brand you have some good product you have enough of it to share and you do it consistently well then they'll recognize your brand and continue to purchase it even if you're black market grower right what separates the successful commercial operators from distressed assets is that operational efficiency play like can you actually do it cheaply enough and people that come from the black market maybe they don't have a certain skill set that's desirable for that role their ability to make money with minimal inputs becomes powerful right like we talked about labor labor will kill you in this space but if you have good SOPs and good people, you don't have that morale drop and huge turnover that leads to, again, training every week on people how to take cuttings. Instead, you have people mastering this space with career opportunities. They're like, I was a trimmer and then I did post-harvest processing and I mastered these machines. And I learned how to use these automation controls and these systems and I've used these lights and these racks. That familiarity is what lets you sort of shortcut some of that process. So... You, you were touching base on like basically that survival is like a lean principle approach is going to be critical for survival for a lot of people. You know, they didn't have a good understanding of what their true cost of goods per so, you know, it didn't uh, matter. You just, you they, could produce for $2,000 a pound. There was so much, five there was so much fluff on the top. It didn't matter. But, you know, my rationale as an operator, when I've gone into operations is like, I'm aware that the leaner I am, the more profitable I am. And so ultimately my goal if I can get in early enough, which have had some good opportunities early in Colorado, I feel like I was super late to California, um, but hopefully early in Florida here soon. If you can get in early and you can get down to 350 a pound out the door and, and reap the benefit, you know it's going to drop. It seems like the people that get caught with their pants down is they're probably producing for like, they think they're producing for 600 to 800 and they find out when they really do the math, it's like- seven eight. Or 12 or 13 I've seen, and they're just like, oh my God, I had no idea. I wasn't factoring in all these things. Packaging, post-harvest. Post-harvest labor seems to be an area where, A, I see a lot of degradation and trichome destruction, but also like just a lot of what I would describe as devaluating touches um, and not thinking about the end user. Um, but for for your sake, you have a really interesting personal history and I'm probably going to say it wrong, but is that I feel correlates really well to what cultivators need to, how they need to prepare for the future. But your one of your passions is ultra light backpacking or hiking. Yeah, definitely. Man. Did I say that right? Absolutely, okay. ultra light backpacking. All right. So if any, I'm a little bit familiar with the ultra community from a couple of patients that we had at Kind Love. Um, but can you tell our guests a little bit about kind of what that is and then how you started from an equipment and support standpoint and where you got to yeah uh, there's a lot of relevance there mainly 
too, because I got into ultralight backpacking in 2009 when I was like, I'm going to walk away from the cannabis industry. I made some money. I'm out. Right. And I walked the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, and how long is that? It's like 2,700 some odd miles. And how many months did that take you? Almost four. Wow. So, which is fast, right? Pretty quick. The first time I tried to hike it, I had a 50 pound pack and I hiked 22 miles and just died at Lake Moraine. And I was like, I quit, come pick me up. And then I trained for a year, like mentally, physically did research, figured it out, bought good gear, knew what I needed. And then I started flying like 10 pound pack. The idea being that I would assess the weather like you would the market as a cannabis cultivator. Say, this is all I need to get to the next spot. I'm not going to bring anything I don't, but I'm going to have exactly what I need and I'm going to run in on empty. And then the margins are high, the winds are big and the ease and the nimble nature in what you can do. Like the free capital is always laying around for the emergency situation because you haven't brought all this extra stuff. Extra baggage. And we see a lot of extra stuff in these cultivation rooms, especially for new cultivators who go to, you know, the world famous MJ BizCon and they get excited and they get sold on by all these various vendors. And we're seeing vendors um, leave the space, not able to survive, you know, and they're kind of like exciting and new. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, where did they go? But there's people that just basically buy conflicting equipment. I'm sure you saw that on the HVAC side quite a bit with um, different thermal energies. And you know, you're trying to balance something. We have everything fighting itself. Sure. Throwing everything out of homeostasis. I think, you know, fear makes you do a lot of weird stuff with your money and not understanding what you've invested in is a challenge, right? Like snake oil has been a part of this thing since I had a hydro shop and it's like, Hey, look, you know, increase your yield by 115%. Add silica and you're like, whatever. Right. So I think we're at this point now where it's science backed decision-making, right? It's about taking case studies that close the loop on financial performance and risk reduction and seeing if these techniques and technologies actually pan out. Don't just go buy the next shiny new thing. Like, make sure you know how to use the thing that you have. Run the thing that you have into the ground. And then when that thing's broken, you'll know why you're buying the new thing. Well, unnecessary equipment, like like you started hiking with a 50-pound pack. And I used to backpack as a kid, nothing fast like you were doing, but 50. And I started the same way. Every year I'd go back to go backpacking. My backpack that I would purchase would get smaller and smaller until, and you saw me arrive and you were like, that's all you have. And I'm like, this is it. Um, the adage I like to tell, right, for ultralight backpacking advice is the heaviest thing in your pack will always be fear. Nice. If you're afraid to read the weather and you put in three extra pairs of socks, what are you doing? Wash the pair of socks in the river when you get to the checkpoint, right? So fear is, fear will weigh you down. It will make you hesitate, lose market opportunity, not get what you need at the right time very applicable to cannabis, um, you know, running with that lean principle mentality, just what you need when you need it, just in time kind of, uh, you know, delivery, so to speak. But to satisfy CFOs, it's like, well, it's, you know, what was a four phase plan is now like one phase and then projects go sideways really quick. It's, I like that you bring that up because I try and, you know, when I have a, a platform to do so, I try and speak and say, on full phase projects where there's no phasing whatsoever. And I'm like, gosh, this is a pretty big facility. You know, you're trying to turn all these lights on at once. You're trying to, that's a lot. And also from a design standpoint, 
I don't know how many facilities that we've collectively between PIP and GrowGlide and us personally, all the Grow Cultivation team members that we have, which I think there's seven of us now or something, which is pretty awesome. Um, I, I can't sit here and say I, out of all the 60 facilities we've designed that I've got a perfect one. It's never perfect. And, you know, you're just constantly tweaking and refining. But when you build out a full facility all at once, you make mistakes. And a lot of times you either can't fix them or can't afford to fix them and be down. And so you're kind of stuck with them. And, you know, as an owner operator in the space and you walk by that mistake every day or there's some restriction or there's something that is an injury, you know, there's that bottleneck or that choke. It's that, a daily constant reminder that you screwed up. Sure. But with, you know, if you phase out a project, right, you typically a one or two or sometimes three phase project is typical. They almost always have design changes in the first, second phases that are, you know, from the lessons learned and paper doesn't always translate well to ops. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of approaches in that space, but like that, you know, some people say I want to have it and not need it. Right. So when you build out these rooms, yeah, it's a big ask, more connected electrical, more HVAC. I've seen people design rooms, build out one, optimize it or build out to optimize them and then look to the next three and four rooms and say, I can get away with 10 tons less of HVAC, this much less connected electrical. There's opportunities there to save a ton of money on the overall build out. And people think, oh, I'll get to revenue, you know, slower, but it's like, but when you get there, the efficiency of that last room you build is the perfect room. That's what you scale into now your next facility, because clearly you didn't learn it on the first one, right? But if you build out an entire facility with 10 rooms, like that was your one shot. Did you nail it? No. Like build it out in succession and you'll learn the genetics, the flow. Like I remember talking to you years ago, you brought up this concept of like tracking people's footsteps in the facility. So you know how far they had to go to get the scissors or the mop or to exit like there's seconds matter. There's days in there, days of travel it time was, back and forth. Har it was from Harborside. Once, you know, Harborside was five acres of greenhouses, independent greenhouses. And my flower rooms were one acre wide open. There was no separation. Um, I would also, this is my first time in a commercial greenhouse as an operator. I was more of an indoor guy, right? Sure. Coming from Colorado and vertical farming and all that stuff. But um, the way that the cards fell, I had the most qualifications of everybody in the room at the time. And I, and nobody really wanted to take on the responsibility of remediating existing old greenhouses <laughs> and trying to prep them from topiaries to cannabis with nine foot gutters and raised benches. I mean, yes. you had such a tight space to play with, but honestly, because of my experience in vertical farming, I said, all right, I've got, got like six feet from the trusses to the table. Like, all right, I'm going to grow like three and a half. I'm going to grow like a four foot tall plant. Um, you know, but if it wasn't for that um, kind of vertical farming and like figuring out how to do things in a tight space, um, I don't know. I mean, it was still a pretty rough startup like most, but I, I looked at all of our labor and I was like, man, I got a lot of people and I had some of the best workers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I mean, just incredible workforce available there in California from a full-time and like a temp staffing agency. True. I've really, that's one of the biggest strengths there for sure. Um, but I remember... Um, if I could eliminate 10 steps, 10 seconds or 10 steps that in a typical task where I'd have X amount of employees on doing defoliation or something, but if I could take 10 seconds or 10 steps out of that equation, 
it was 27 hours of savings. And I was like, oh my God. And you know, we were, it was California. I think we were paying, I don't know, I can't remember, 18 to $22, sure. maybe $24 for some of the players that were in that greenhouse. And so all of a sudden it was like, wow, there's huge dollars to tie, tied to, you know, wandering around and looking for things. One of the reasons that I got involved with podcasts is because I don't listen to a lot of them, to be honest with you, but I found a few early on where I really learned. And I was like, man, I work in this industry and I talk to these, you know, experts all the time. And sometimes I pick up a couple little things, but like, there's always a nugget. Yeah. But like, you know, there's a couple lean farming podcasts I listened to that really hit well for me. And it's like, it's not just for about cannabis. It applies to your life. And then I started going down the lean rabbit hole and I was like, oh, I kind of like this. I'm like a minimalist. So like when I think of like the perfect grow room, it doesn't have a lot of tchotchkes on the wall. You know, it's like, it's exactly what you think. It's minimalist. It's like clean, sterile, racking lights, in-room air circulation, all the HVACs where it needs to be. I might do some air sanitation stuff, but there, I want to walk in and it, it, you know exactly what it is and you know where everything is. I love shadow boards for that reason. You know, like everything has a place and if it's missing, you know it right away. Right. Um, I tend to use magnetic strips a lot in like post-harvest processing with scissors. Everything's eye level. Everything has a home and a purpose. And if it's not in your hand, it's not on the bench. I've seen so many sloppy practices with scissor handling and they'll put it in substrate. You know, they're like, I don't know. We got this disease. You know, and they're like, look at your scissor handling practices. So I hate at scale, I really hated when people would, when I'd pay people to wander around and go look for something. So I made sure that everybody had exactly what they needed for whatever that task was. Um, but that ultralight packing and the survival of these cannabis fac facilities in the future in these consolidated markets, they need to lean up. They need to, like you were saying, like, you know, you take a little bit of risk and reward, but like get as light and nimble as you can and, and focus on absolutely necessary and not nice to have or comfortable or it makes me feel good because there's a lot of waste in that if mindset. You can't answer the, what is this solving and how much more money does it make? Then you can't buy it, right? You need, that's the key in my opinion, right? Like what am I solving for? What pain, what risk, what production ailment, what KPI am I driving, solving for the Delta and how does it make me more money? If you can do that, then you're going to invest in this solution because it's going to make you more money and it's going to make you more lean. To me, that makes sense. But just like trying to chase the hot new thing because it's Instagrammable or people want to see that trimmer in your space or someone will give you something for free. The free stuff is never free. It's never free. It's very expensive. I, that's uh, one of my, I've just been burned enough over the years where I'm like, no, we won't be beta trialing. We're in startup mode. We're going to go with proven industry leading stuff that's already integrated that we know has best practices associated with it. Like, oh, I like that people always put an R and D facility in their spot, but it kind of is, it's a little hokey. It ends up being like pheno hunting or quarantine. And sometimes it just ends up being like a tent in a room where you're like, Oh, come well, on. Like what level are we? Well, at? my issue is always like, well, like R and D sounds nice, like, but the word is research. Um, and so like, what research are you doing? What data are you really gathering? You know, there's this issue in the cannabis industry and a lot of it's because there's things like metric that are, um, forced, um, or mandated is probably the more nicer way to say that. Um, and there's also all your internal tracking stuff. And so I see that the cannabis industry is capturing 
a boatload of data. Sure. But there's very few places that are taking the time to analyze it. You know, the typical leadership and cultivation, they're just trying to keep the ship afloat and moving in a direction. They're not like, oh, I need, I'm going to crunch these numbers for four or five hours and build some beautiful spreadsheets and present them to, you know, it's like, it's pretty rare to see people actually harnessing the data outside of like, you know, substrate um, moisture and stuff and water content. And I was just going to say like, there's all these tools that you can invest in that can help give you the granular data you, you need to make a better action plan. But if you don't know how to use that data, don't dedicate the labor to it because the cost is too high, right? Like again, back to using the tools, there are great ones out there, but actually use them, collect the data and take action. Otherwise, like you were saying, like there really needs to be a dedicated person in every facility that's the data cruncher, right? They know what the outliers look like. They have expectations for the data and they can interpret the results because you also need someone to grow the plants. And the faster you can interpret those results, the faster you can input the action plan to solve these problems, which again, reduces risks and keeps people afloat. So I could talk to you forever, but I'm going to, with my last question for today, and I'm sure we'll have some more of these conversations. Um, what are you excited for? And do you have any predictions for the future of multi-tiered cannabis? And also I'd be curious on your thoughts on food crops. Yeah, I think that there's this, you know, fear in the market right now. And it's the perfect opportunity for operators that are not as risk averse to scale what they've done with multi-tier success or to add a second tier now, go from single tier to multi-tier and take advantage of competition leaving the market. There, If you double down now and you get lean now, you'll get more market share tomorrow. And that market share is going to go up in value. The cannabis industry is not going anywhere. Real estate's getting more and more expensive. Markets are different geographically. So figure out where there's a lot of consumers and feed them really cool products, solve really cool problems. And I think that's the unseen thing when we talk about operational efficiency. It gets really heady in this CFO talk. Like one of the beauties of it is that as a brand, you get to serve the customer better, throw cool parties, have cool giveaways. Like, you know, I recently just talked to a woman who wants to take advantage of ecotourism with cannabis and food crops and bridging that knowledge gap, right? Get people that are really into a cannabis experience to also be able to come to a farm and people that want to see a commercial farm also see cannabis farmed commercially. So there's these two hand in hand where who's feeding who, right? We had all this monetary opportunity for tech investment in cannabis and we learned a lot and now we see the commercial ag industry adopting some of it not all of it mm -hmm. maybe going too far in certain cases but again like back to emissivity adjusted ir gun or anemometer or these common tools to measure temperatures and airflow and things in the space are now common knowledge in lower level agricultural facilities every cultivation facility should have a, a set of handheld tools because unfortunately, sensors and other technology get moved, disconnected. Trust, or, but verify. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. And just that, yeah, that double, triple check. Um, what's happening to my plants right now, right here. Right. And at what level? And like, 
you really get to optimize again the lights, the racking, the fertigation, the drybacks, the nutrients, all those things are going to be a byproduct. The fine tuning is going to be a byproduct of your ability to collect the granular data and interpret it quickly. The faster you do that, the faster you put together a scalable SOP for commercial production, and now you can build more. One of the first podcasts I did was at a place called Planet Detroit, and they are a non-cannabis, a CEA, a microgreen, microflowers facility. And they're, um, they're just, just, they're pretty much in Detroit, but they're just kind of, yeah, maybe just outside of Detroit, a, a smidge. And it was so fascinating because during the podcast, one of the things they said is, well, I said, how'd you hear about PIP? And they were like, oh, you know, you saw from cannabis industry and and, I, and I'm so typical of there being like a green tax. So like if I want an agricultural product and I call them up historically and I'm like, I'm a cannabis farm, you're better off being like, no, I do basil. And then please give me agriculture. I always say, please give me like typical agricultural pricing. Like 2% I, margin price. Yeah. I don't need to pay twice as much because you think cannabis people are rich. What was interesting, what they said was they said, because of the cannabis industry and the development and the demand, it drove down the price point for vertical farming equipment and made it more affordable for a non-cannabis farm to buy the equipment. And I thought that was pretty neat because I was like, I'm not used to that. I'm used to their stuff, agricultural stuff, always being cheaper. Sure. And here's the cannabis industry helping non-cannabis CEA. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think there's a good exchange of back and forth information too, especially when we think about like IPM and environmental control and these really tight margins in commercial ag. Like there's a lot to be learned from, is it worth it to invest in day-night differentials or particular IPM applications, what are the benefits, what's the cost analysis? Because when you only have 2% margin to be made in commercial ag, you'll figure out really quick what actually works. That's where the cannabis industry can come in and say, that's something that I really need to apply in my facility. And vice versa, you know, we've seen the rise of vertical farming in tomatoes and strawberry runneries and, you know, selling high green high level greens to airplanes and all these other things. Yeah, Michelin star restaurants eat up this stuff, you know, it's been really fascinating. Um, Part of it's the story of using the tool too, right? Like, do you use a particular light to bring out anthocyanin production? Like, is that more valuable to your consumer? Is it just a purple, tiny leaf lettuce, like master your niche and do it the best and do it efficiently. And there's margins for sure. Well, I'm excited about our new budding partnership. And um, if for people who are listening, where can they um, learn more about GrowGlide? Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity to plug. So um, GrowGlide.com is my favorite place to send people because that is uh, a place where we can hide in a bunch of really good content, right? Like the resources page has our white paper Wednesdays. It has our podcasts and the room gen is there so you can take a tour of our solutions and really see plumbing, airflow, electrical, basic overview, but then you can also jump into the room gen, which is one of my favorite tools to play around with as a consultant for years. Like I would have to pay for services like that. And now I can just go in and get an order of magnitude on this canopy versus this canopy and then play out the scenarios for the use of limited capital and say, with what we're looking at from a restrictions perspective, I think we should build 2,000 square foot canopy rooms versus these 3,500 because we'll actually be able to do it. And that to me was the revolution that was like, we can shorten the decision-making timeline down by 50%. Let's just get on the same page really quickly, pursue an A, B. 
And then it's yes or no, not 11th hour change orders and trying to figure it all out. Yeah. I, I think the room configurator really was so helpful for people to really see what they're doing and bringing it to life. And I'm excited to get that implemented on the PIP side. It's going to be fun. Yeah. All right, my brother. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, Michael. Thanks for a good show. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.